Hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast dedicated to discussing all things related to hypermobility. Today, our guest is Taylor Goldberg, DC, a chiropractor who works with hypermobile patients, including her work as a hypermobility coach. Taylor puts out great content on her social media pages, including her Instagram page, and we'll include links to both her website and social media in the episode notes for this page. Hi, Taylor. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. So let's start at the beginning, as we often do on this podcast. When did you first learn about hypermobility? Yeah, so I'm actually very rare and lucky to have known about hypermobility from a very young age. So I knew that I was different in second grade. My mom didn't really put a name to what it was, but I knew that I was struggling in some way, shape, or form, especially compared to my peers. And now I know that is because of my hypermobility. But I always knew that something was different about me ever since I was little. And what were, I guess if you don't mind sharing, what were kind of some of the things that were happening that made you feel differently than your peers? Yeah. So the biggest one was I could not write or hold a pencil until second grade. And I actually had to have an occupational therapist. Um, It was called handwriting tutoring back then. But um, it was an occupational therapist who really helped me learn how to hold a pencil and to gain grip strength back. Besides that, there was definitely some ADHD tendencies that I was showing as a kid. And as we now know, hypermobility and neurodivergent, there's definitely a link between the two. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I was always super flexible. I was always the bendy girl. I was called Gumby as a kid. Um, I was a competitive cheerleader, so it did have some perks. But I don't think I would be able to use those perks if I didn't have the people I had in place, like an occupational therapist and a physical therapist at the time to be able to allow me to do these things safely. That's so great that you were able to access knowledge about hypermobility at a young age. And it's such an important story. And thank you for sharing that because I think about this a lot with how kids develop on all humans just develop on different timelines and have different needs. Yet there's kind of this expectation that everyone should be meeting certain benchmarks by different times. And I bet there's a lot of people out there like you who struggle with writing or reading or, you know, various components of school that need a little extra accommodation and a little extra sort of training or awareness to be able to kind of meet the benchmarks that school expects of us. And and it's kind of sad thinking about those that aren't able to sort of access those kind of accommodations. But it's it's so amazing that that you were. Absolutely. And I feel like if I wasn't in the situation that I was in, most people who are having those issues, maybe they're not able to hold a pencil, maybe they are having some reading comprehension issues. If the teachers and if the staff doesn't know about hypermobility, that's not going to be kind of top of mind for them to talk to the parents about. And if the parents have no clue what that even is, They're probably going to go undiagnosed until their 30s or mid-20s like the average person in this population does. And I think that is something that if it were changed, it would be huge for the quality of life of this entire population. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And it's so interesting how the knowledge is so different in different parts of the country. There's some places with like a complete lack of awareness. There's some places with a good level of awareness, it sounds like. And then there's some places where people are really uninformed or, or sort of misinformed. Like I was thinking of a recent court case, actually, I was reading in federal court 
well, actually, I read it quite a while ago, but I was reminded of it again recently and looked back at it. And it's a case where a doctor was testifying in a case where parents were asking for a special education plan. And this doctor testified that fatigue to the point of being non-functioning and a bunch of other things, I think maybe even headaches was in there, were not features of Ehlers-Danlos. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> we're all familiar with the struggle that many hypermobile people go through to get information and learn about their conditions. But I can't even imagine then being up against a doctor who actively th- or thinks things that are sort of contrary to the body of knowledge that we're familiar with at this point. Absolutely. And that goes into a whole other topic of not only is there medical gaslighting when it comes to whether you have this or whether you don't, but when you do have it, what the spectrum really means and what is a part of the spectrum, I think, mm-hmm. gets really misinformed and really confused, mainly because a lot of doctors aren't informed right now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's a really important part of this to consider. And yeah, it's just, it's sort of never ceases to amaze me how there is, there's some pockets of the country and of the world with extraordinary levels of knowledge and some amazingly compassionate providers out there. But there's a lot of people who maybe learned one slide in medical school or nothing at all. It's tough that patients have to kind of do their homework and figure out who's knowledgeable or who at least will listen and will look at the evidence and the data for what it is. Absolutely. And that's, I would say, in my opinion, the biggest thing that is needed is a better way to educate MDs, DCs, PTs on what this really, what this diagnosis really consists of, because it is really complex and it's just not simple enough to explain in a textbook and kind of just how to listen to patients and take in what they're saying without having any assumptions towards them. Mm-hmm. That's so important. And yeah, I, I do think that part of the issue is because connective tissue conditions and differences can affect so many different systems, you know, hypermobility and Ehlers-Danlos are kind of spread across so many disciplines, but there are very few providers in the country that I'm aware of who kind of look at all of the aspects of care together. And it's like you said, chiropractors, PTs, all different specialties, even teachers, like we were talking about a moment earlier, like just having a baseline level of knowledge of what this condition is can be so helpful for people to get the proper level of understanding because it's really unfortunate for individuals to constantly be having to explain their own symptoms, but also be explaining what Ehlers-Danlos and hypermobility <laughs> are in that conversation. Like, And on top of it, they're probably so fatigued and in so much pain. The mm-hmm. last thing they want to have to do is go on a rabbit hole search for mm-hmm. someone who might possibly know what they're talking about and not leave that appointment feeling extremely defeated and feeling like everything is in their head. And they already feel not great. And Mm -hmm. just adding to that. Absolutely. That's a really good point. And, you know, talking about we we touched on neurodivergency a moment earlier, and, you know, it's kind of differences in development. And so that's a part of this, too, that it's, it's really unfortunate that people who, you know, many people in this community struggle with intense pain, fatigue, and then differences in communication styles, all different factors. 
And so it really is a tightrope balancing act that patients are being asked to perform socially as well as navigating their own bodies. It's a lot. It's a lot. Absolutely. So how did you ultimately decide to become a chiropractor? So I, when I was in high school, I was in a medical program and I kind of always knew I wanted to go the medical route. Um, when I went to undergrad, I went to undergrad at Florida State, go Knowles. I was going to go for pre-med. That was kind of my whole plan. Did all of that, took the MCAT, took all the classes. And then I got to study abroad um, my senior year and I took a holistic medicine class in Spain And it kind of really opened my eyes to what our medical system is like and that I may or may not be able to actually treat the way I wanted to as an MD at the time. I didn't know that much. I was only, what, 22 years old. But at the time, it just didn't seem like the right path for me. So I didn't know what I wanted to do at that point. But I knew I still wanted to help people and I didn't want to be an MD. So I shadowed a couple of different people and chiropractic just seemed to kind of line up with my values and what I wanted to do. And so I just kind of applied and ended up getting in and went and the rest was kind of history. Um, I did have a chiropractor going up that helped me out a lot. So I didn't really see the negative sides of chiropractic until I was kind of in chiropractic school. Honestly, I didn't know that much about anything when I applied to school. I was just kind of rolling with the punches. That's a great story. And it's so great that you were able to adapt what you wanted to do with your career, that you learned more, saw that this medical model wasn't for you. And yet you were still able to take stock of what parts in that profession that you were seeking and then found something that was more in line with what you wanted to do. It's a great lead into my next question, talking about the controversy associated with chiropractic medicine, particularly in hypermobility and those with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. There's a lot of concern in the community about chiropractic medicine being used on hypermobile people. And yet there are some people who, you know, go to chiropractors and and benefit from that practice. So what do you see as the role of chiropractors in treating hypermobility and HEDS? And what, if any, parts of chiropractic medicine can be contraindicated for these patients? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it goes back to defining what chiropractic really is. Chiropractic is so much more than just adjusting. And a lot of people, when they hear chiropractic, including my family, they still don't understand how I'm doing things virtually. But chiropractic is so much more than adjusting. It's listening to your patients. It's creating rehab plans together. It's creating a plan to get your quality of life back. It's looking at your whole body, not only physically, but also looking at your stress levels, your sleep levels, what really is impacting you in these ways and how can we kind of put all of these pieces together? Because there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle when it comes to hypermobility. And how can we create a plan and a care team if needed to get you to where you need to go? And I think that's what that's what chiropractic is to me. I can't say that's what chiropractic is to everybody. I'll be the first to admit that I think there's a lot of issues in the chiropractic field. And mainly because a lot of chiropractors are just rack them and crack them and really only know how to adjust because unfortunately that's what we're taught in school and it is changing slowly and I really do believe my generation is going to be the change in the chiropractic field but as of right now there is still a lot of old school chiropractors who truly would adjust a hypermobile neck when we know it is extremely contraindicated and there's very good reasons for that so when we have 
ligament laxity or we have a connective tissue disorder, if we get a high velocity adjustment, so a manual adjustment from a chiropractor, we're at a much higher risk of something called a CSF leak, which is really, really scary and can really honestly change your life for the worst forever. And it's something that is completely avoidable, which is why I'm so passionate about it. And I talk about it a lot on my TikTok. There's no need to adjust a hypermobile neck ever under any situation. I just don't see any point in it. There's so much risk that is not worth the reward. And there's a lot of other things that we can do besides adjusting to help our patient. And yeah. Thank you for that description. And that makes so much sense. It is really unfortunate that many people's perception of the chiropractic practice is based on this kind of extreme notion of adjustments and particularly the neck adjustments that we know can be really problematic. And thank you for reminding us all about how that's contraindicated and why, because CSF leaks are a risk for many in the hypermobile and Ehlers-Danlos communities just on a sort of day-to-day basis, you know, let alone with such a, like you say, a high velocity maneuver like that. And yet there, I, I'm also aware from personal experience that there can be a huge benefit in sort of some of the other aspects of chiropractic medicine. Like I saw a chiropractor who gave me a lot of advice on ergonomics and posture and explained to me that every 10 degrees, the head is forward. That's like an extra 10 pounds of pressure on those core ligaments and muscles that are holding up our necks and in that whole kind of shoulder region. I'm aware that there is sort of a lot more to it than just the adjustments, but it does take a while for that public perception. And even like you say, the kind of knowledge within the chiropractic medicine community itself to catch up. And so I share your dream that your generation will be the ones to kind of situate chiropractic medicine like properly in its context and be a part of this care team and potential toolbox of options that patients, including hypermobile patients, can can potentially really benefit from. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. And on the topic of ergonomics and things like that, and one thing that chiropractors are good at and we are trained is to read research and to interpret research and to use that for musculoskeletal pain in all realms and aspects, including your day-to-day life. So just having little things to tweak your day, like taking more movement breaks and maybe releasing tension instead of focusing so much on sitting perfectly, because that might not be what you truly need in those moments. And you might not know that if someone else doesn't help you and guide you in that direction. So there's so much that chiropractors can do, especially for hypermobile bodies. And a lot of the time, they just are not known that they can do it, including the chiropractors. But um, I think the general public really views us in a light that is negative. And I'm not going to lie, there's valid reasons for that. But I always say judge the professional, not the profession, because we could say the same thing about any other profession. Absolutely. I love that saying. And that's very much applicable to my profession as well, being a lawyer. I mean, we all hear about the kind of negative examples, but there's certainly a lot of really wonderful attorneys, doctors. And I think that's a great phrase, like, let's judge the professional, or, um, you know, not the entire profession. Like, let's look at the individual and their practice. And and it's so great that you are trained to look at research. And that is such a big component of this for hypermobile individuals, because even some of the doctors who are somewhat aware of EDS or hypermobility, not 
many are really keeping up on the research. And it really is a really small group that's really kind of keying into the research and following. And I, I see that as a really important piece of this to kind of start to wrap our heads around, you know, what is hypermobility? What is the true nature of this um, spectrum phenomenon that's happening? So let's now talk a little bit about your approach to treating hypermobile patients. First of all, is there a typical patient that you see or that sort of most fits with your practice? Or are you seeing patients at different places in the spectrum of hypermobility? So I'm definitely seeing people all over the spectrum. And I think Let's define the spectrum. So hypermobility is on a spectrum and some people may have really, really severe symptoms and others may not be as affected by their hypermobility. And just because you're diagnosed with hypermobile spectrum disorder or hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, as of right now, it's really important to note that they should be treated with the same level of severity and that they are both a part of the same spectrum. And so just because you have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome does not necessarily mean that your symptoms are worse than someone who has hypermobile spectrum disorder. I see people who are diagnosed, who are trying to become diagnosed, who think that they may have this and don't end up having this. And there's another diagnosis that may be more fitting for them. Um, So I see people on their journey throughout the entire spectrum, if you will. And my approach to treating them is very individualized. So I truly, truly, truly believe the biggest downfall of hypermobility in general right now is that we are generalizing a lot of things. And because it is so individualized and it is a spectrum, it's impossible to generalize pretty much anything when it comes to this. And so I treat the person in front of me. I listen to what their symptoms are and we create a plan together to approach the different areas that they need. And I'm fully aware that I can't do all of that on my own. So a lot of what I do is connecting them with other doctors who may specialize in this or coaching them on how to speak to doctors, because that is something that is really, really hard for a lot of patients or clients. Um, And then the biggest thing I do is get people to start exercising again, because we know that exercise can be extremely helpful when it comes to reconditioning a deconditioned body, which happens a lot in the hypermobile population, but it's also super helpful for joint pain and other things and just getting people their life back and their quality of life and their independence as well. So a big part of what I do is gradually exposing people to movement again in a way that feels good for them, starting at a tolerable starting point and going with the punches along the way of we're in constant communication. And if something doesn't go well one day, we restart and try to figure out why and make a plan for that. That's wonderful. It sounds like your role is so multifaceted and addresses so many aspects of the challenges of living with hypermobility. And I love your attitude and your approach of being creative and being willing to kind of go back to the drawing board if things aren't working out and your willingness to serve as kind of a point person to help people coordinate their care and find the right specialists. And I always see that as a a sign of great professional strength when professionals are willing and able and encourage their clients or patients as they may be to to reach out to someone else when something is outside of their knowledge or expertise instead of just kind of writing it off oh that doesn't work that doesn't matter don't worry about that kind of thing and so i can definitely see how your practice can be extremely beneficial to a lot of patients in, in this community and i think it's great that you're taking your own experience and your observations and your medical training and expertise and you know your chiropractic training 
and applying that to being able to help this population that's really in need. And, and it can be difficult to work with because there are so many challenges. And it's unfortunate to see how many providers kind of are dismissive and give up in the face of that challenge. But it's that much more inspiring when people like you lean into that challenge and are willing to embrace it. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And I totally agree. I see that happen all the time where doctors or other, even honestly, PTs and chiros, they don't know something. So instead of finding someone that does or figuring it out themselves, they blame it on the patient sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that can be really, really disheartening. And if anybody, for everyone listening, it is not your fault if a doctor dismisses you. That's just not the right doctor. That's just not the right practitioner for you in those moments. And I know it's hard to find the right person and it's hard to find someone that will validate and listen to you. But there are resources and there are things that can help you in this realm. And I'm a resource that I would like to offer to anybody who's struggling with this as well. That's great. Again, just it's yeah, so important to be able to have these people to go to kind of help you make sense of things and be a sounding board because even talking about some of these issues and symptoms that come up can be tricky, as you mentioned. And so I think it's great, too, that you're helping to coach people on how to have these difficult conversations and how to kind of broach these subjects and how to move on and look for another provider when if things aren't working out for whatever reason. So there's a lot of confusion in the community about the distinction between hypermobility spectrum disorder or what's called HSD and HEDS or hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos. What are your thoughts on the distinction between these two diagnoses? And do you have different approaches to treating patients depending on whether they've been diagnosed with HSD, HEDS, or a different hypermobility or connective tissue condition? So right now we don't have a gene for hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, although I do believe that will change in the very near future. I'm hoping the Norris Lab, if you guys don't know what that is, they're doing really amazing work trying to figure this out for all of us. But as of right now, HSD and HEDS, in my opinion, should be treated exactly the same. So no, I do not do anything different. The comorbidities that we need to look out for are exactly the same. The level of severity that their symptoms present are exactly the same. In my opinion, currently, based off of the research we currently have, there is no reason to treat those two diagnoses any different. That's very interesting and certainly consistent with what I've read and the research I've seen coming out. There was just an article that came out in the end of 2022. It looks like November 2022, or it was published December 14th. And the title of the article is talking about dermal fibroblasts in, with, in patients with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility spectrum disorders. And the idea that these fibroblasts support their, the categorization of these two conditions as a single entity with involvement of extracellular matrix degrading and pro-inflammatory pathomechanisms. Me- uh, that's a mouthful. But um, <laughs> it was very interesting to see this article came come out and say, that these dermal fibroblasts are different, at least the way I understand what this article is arguing, that these cells look different in patients with Ehlers-Danlos and hypermobility spectrum disorders, and that this finding supports their categorization as a single entity, a single condition. And I think that's very interesting. And there's been kind of other articles talking about this. And it is really unfortunate that for whatever reason, many providers seem to have the perception that HSD is less severe. And I don't know if part of this comes back to HSD not having a diagnostic code, um, which also seems quite strange because that's how providers 
bill for their services. And so yes. there isn't a diagnostic code. I, I guess I, I don't see how what providers are supposed to make of this diagnosis exactly. And I guess it makes me like, I, f- I feel for the people that have HSD diagnoses. And I wonder whether that precludes them from accessing treatments and care that would be more sort of easy to get access to if they had an Ehlers-Danlos diagnosis. Absolutely. Um, Two things. One, every paper that I've read up until honestly still currently, they haven't found any differences between HSD and HEDS. One of my favorite papers talks about the strength but um, when we're born, our muscle mass between HEDS, HSD, and the general population, and HSD and HEDS, there was no differences, but there was a difference between the two of them and the general population. So it just keeps confirming our beliefs. And that's, I'm excited to see where the research goes for this, but I would be truly shocked if there was something that differentiated the two. It would really, really, really surprise me. Um, But the biggest issue, I think, too, with the HSD diagnosis, like you were saying, is insurance companies will not even take that as a, I guess, a real diagnosis, if you will. They won't, Mm -hmm. you won't be able to get any sort of help from an insurance point of view either. So that's very, very problematic on its own as well. Yeah. And I wonder if that impacts people's ability to get like special education plans in school, like we were talking about earlier, or um, accommodations at work under the Americans with Disabilities Act or accommodations at school. Like it just seems to have such significant implications from those of us who have been in the community and interacted with hypermobile people, it's kind of well known in the community that there are people with HSD who are more severely impacted than some people who are diagnosed with EDS. And obviously we know vice versa as well. So it's a very strange situation and hopefully that will get figured out for the better so that all hypermobile people have access to the treatments that are appropriate for them based on their condition and symptoms. Absolutely. And I think, too, the validation and the self-gaslighting that I see when people are diagnosed with HSD in comparison to HEDS, it's almost like they don't think that their symptoms should be as severe because they don't have HEDS. And that is just not the case. And I hope anybody listening realizes that these two right now are indistinguishable, whether insurance companies in the rest of the world have caught on yet. And hopefully that will change really, really soon. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good point to add to. I also am very excited to see some, some of the research that's going on is really fascinating. And Sabiha Malek has done some incredibly groundbreaking, amazing research on HSD and HEDS. And there are many individuals out there like yourself, like, you know, Dr. Courtney Gensimer, we talked about before on this podcast and everything going on at the Norris Lab. It's so great to see people living with this condition, being a part of the practice, the research, and being able to craft some of the narrative. Because I do wonder if part of the issue is, you know, lots of people who don't have these conditions themselves looking at them kind of a step removed and trying to make sense of it. And a lot of this kind of is difficult to wrap your head around if you're not living with it. But for people that live with these things, you know, a lot of these things that we're talking about are, are pretty intuitive. Absolutely. Um, I think that being uh, the quote where it's like, I've lived with this for 20 years, you studied it for one test is is really true mm-hmm. when it comes to these. And with that being said, I still think that it's awesome and important that practitioners who don't have it still care. I know 
there's a lot of practitioners in the PT world and in the chiropractic world who are trying to learn about this and they may have a harder time understanding some of the things because they aren't experiencing them themselves, but I still commend everyone to at least try. And the biggest thing is just listening to the person in front of you and not assuming that they're crazy. Unfortunately, that's what we get all of the time when someone comes in to, they go to their doctor and they explain these symptoms and they get looked at dead in the eye and they're like, oh, so you have anxiety, Mm -hmm. go Go, to, go do some yoga. Mm-hmm. And that's just the most upsetting thing. And I agree, being able to live with this and understand and experience that medical gaslighting ourselves as well puts us in a very unique position to be able to help people navigate this world, because that's really what we have to do. Absolutely. You made some great points in there. And I agree, it's so important for hypermobile people and non-hypermobile people to come to a better understanding of what this condition is. It can be so validating and great when somebody without this condition listens and cares and you know that they're not just getting it because they've lived it themselves, that they're, you know, really exercising some compassion and curiosity. And and it's so interesting too that you pointed out something that we talk about all the time, which is that so many patients are uh, often the inquiry seems to start and end at mental health. And obviously, like we know there is a role of the mind in all of this, you know, we know the mind and the body are deeply connected and being able to come to a place of stability in your thoughts and all of this is incredibly important and is a piece of this for sure. But it troubles me how often the starting and the ending is looking at the anxiety behaviors or the depressive behaviors and trying to treat that kind of tip of the iceberg instead of tapping deeper and looking at, well, why are these things going on? And there's so much research that talks about how seems to be a strong correlation with anxiety and hypermobility. But doctors have pointed out, like Dr. Chopra did a great interview with Karina Sturm from EDS Awareness, I think it was last summer, talking about how, well, I'm paraphrasing here, so I think I'm remembering (laughs) this right, but I think he was kind of making the point like, well, if your joints are popping out, like, of course, you're going to feel unsettled by that. Like, that's natural. And so this research that talks about these, the anxiety, the depression, these things being overrepresented in hypermobility, it troubles me when there isn't an inquiry into that why and are there physical things going on that are driving those thoughts and then the behaviors that result in the thoughts. It also kind of raises an eyebrow or makes me a little uncomfortable when I see all the focus being on the negative side of the coin. And I personally get the sense that we as a hypermobile community in general are very sensitive in many ways. And we have very quick thoughts, a lot of us kind of, you know, a ability for our mind to really do a lot. And there's sort of these, this suggestion that maybe we have larger amygdalas, and there's some kind of theories as to why that might be. But it seems to me that we have kind of a broader range of emotions, both positive and negative. And I see a lot of joy and a lot of resilience and a lot of creativity in a lot of hypermobile people as well. And that doesn't get discussed as much alongside. And I understand, like, we all want to treat people who are in distress, and we all want to figure out those symptoms. But I think to really understand what is hypermobility in context, it's important to look at a why are these negative things happening? And are there physical components that we can help figure out social components and social dynamics that are more difficult for this population? And can we also acknowledge, 
what I see as the great gifts and the great kind of exceptional qualities that I see in hypermobile people all the time as well. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And going back to the, um, it's kind of like the chicken versus the egg, but no one's actually looking to figure any of it out. It's just you're, you're anxious. This is your personality type. This is, that's why it's happening instead of, well, maybe I'm just in so much pain that everything sucks right now that I don't enjoy life anymore because I can't do anything that I love. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm depressed. Or maybe my stomach is really not working and I can't eat anything. And that is why I have absolutely no energy. And no one is asking those questions or putting those pieces together. And I'm too tired to do it for myself right now. And I I just see that so, so often. And it really is a problem and needs to, to be addressed. Absolutely. And even the dynamics we were talking about earlier, if people are having a hard time getting accommodation at school or at work or having a hard time getting medical treatments covered or authorized by their doctors because of what their diagnosis might be. I mean, all of this is a part of our social fabric. A lot of these things are just all too much of a struggle for hypermobile yes. people. Agreed. And so, Absolutely agreed. Yeah. So we've touched on a bunch of the big issues in the community already, but as someone who is hypermobile and works with many hypermobile people, what do you see as the biggest issues in the community that you think are kind of in, in most dire need of being addressed? I think both self-gaslighting and medical gaslighting is the number one thing that I think is the biggest issue in the community right now. But I also think shame as a whole, shame towards one another for, especially on social media, um, thinking that, like we said before, everybody is individualized. One person is going to experience such different symptoms than somebody else. And that also includes treatments too. We see all the time people generalizing, take this supplement, take this medication, do this exercise. And I really think that can be harmful to the community rather than helpful because then you try that thing, it doesn't work, then you question your diagnosis. Well, it worked for somebody else with the same issues as me. I don't understand. Maybe I don't have this. And then you go down a whole other rabbit hole of self-gaslighting. And I think that's a really big issue in our community currently. Absolutely. I agree. And again, it's so complicated dealing with such a spectrum condition and yet realizing that a lot of the problems that can impact the hypermobile population are things that impact the general population as well. And it's tough because I understand when people find something that works for them, people want to share that. And yet it's hard in this context where what really helps someone may be harmful for someone else and vice versa. And so it's it's really hard to kind of maintain a healthy amount of hope and to to try new things and to be creative and you know be open-minded for for new possibilities, but also trying to work with professionals to figure out well what's actually going to be right for you and what's the best way to assess whether this thing is helping you, you know, how long to give a new exercise or treatment or diet plan or whatever may be being discussed. And I think that cycle, like you pointed out, is really important where we can get our hopes up quite a bit and then be crushed when things don't help out as much as we hope that they will. And it's a really tricky balance of knowing how much to share about your own experience and what helps for you and and yet still keeping into context this kind of full spectrum uh, nature of the condition. 
Absolutely. And I think something that I can speak on for myself personally is also sometimes feeling bad for having it good in this community. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not something I talk about a lot. And it's something that I it's something I'm working on. But I do feel shame that I didn't have to go through a really hard diagnostic process like a lot of my clients and past patients have. And I have had it really, really good in this community. And we talked about this earlier, that that shouldn't be a bad thing. But Mm -hmm. the shame behind it makes me personally feel bad about it. And it really should be seen as something hopeful. I think something that we don't talk enough about is that HEDS is not a progressive disorder, but our symptoms can become progressive Mm -hmm. for different reasons. But in itself, it's not a progressive disorder. And a lot of people don't know that. And they are told that they're going to get worse. And that's not always the case. Um, A lot of people get better. And I think that the lack of hope sometimes in this population is a big issue as well. I completely agree. And I feel really so sad for you that you've had to feel that shame over being diagnosed earlier and and having, having things relatively better. And I think that speaks to how much in our especially social media driven world comparison is such a, a big factor in our lives. And it reminds me of the Eleanor Roosevelt quote that comparison is the, I think it's from her, I'm like remembering, but um, comparison is the thief of joy. Yeah. But usually it works the opposite way of what you're describing, right? Like you see like celebrities or whatever people living kind of whatever the high life is these days. I don't know. But, and, and think, oh, that's not us. But it's so sad that people in this community who are better off often feel that sense of shame that they're not suffering as much as much of the community is, it's again a testament to how much of this struggle hypermobile people are taking on themselves and that we feel this responsibility for the community. It's just incredibly tragic. I mean, in some ways, I feel fortunate to sort of have been able to find answers and find providers. And in some ways, I feel very unfortunate to learn about this so late in life. But well, and relatively speaking, as I'm saying that, I immediately thought, what do you mean so late? It's much earlier than a lot of other people. It's <laughs> that exact same phenomenon. You're comparing yourself too. Yes, yes. And so it's it's incredibly difficult. And yet taking a step back and looking at it, it's like every person that gets diagnosed and is able to take stock of what it means and speak about it as nuanced and as accurately as they can, you know, those ripple effects hopefully will reach a level of kind of critical mass awareness in the population and in providers that treat these conditions. Hopefully that's all a step towards a hopefully brighter future where there's less need for this kind of constant friction with society, the medical system, schools, jobs, all these things that we're talking about. And I think your story is important to show how, at least in some instances, and you know, I've heard of other instances where kids are diagnosed early and you know, people kind of question what is the appropriate time for this kind of knowledge and awareness and let alone diagnoses to be made. But you know, you were able to get assistance to be able to complete your schooling and to be in a position to be able to help hypermobile people, which is phenomenal. And, you know, not that everyone hypermobile, you know, needs to go out and help the community. Absolutely not. Like it takes all kinds, but that is particularly, you know, inspiring and great. And you're able to kind of pay your good luck forward, so to speak. And that's kind of a a win-win. And so, yeah, it's just, it's really sad 
with the level of lack of knowledge and information and some kind of misinformation or things that have gone in wonky directions that a lot of that angst in the community is born by individuals who are struggling with their own things. And really, these are ultimately systemic issues. So I I definitely hope that's something that you can kind of come to a sense of peace with. But I also know how complicated these issues are. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And I think everything you said is spot on. And especially getting diagnosed early, I think whether you have the diagnosis formally at what age, I don't know when. I mean, we won't know that until the gene comes out. But once the gene comes out and we can screen people kids especially for hypermobility and then get them genetic testing. I mean, that to me is is the dream and then give them the resources needed at that time. I I genuinely believe there's so much hope that can be done once that once that happens. Yeah, and hopefully there will be kind of additional inquiry into the genes as well. I I can't remember exactly the last time I heard the Norris lab talking about the gene, but I think they speculated that it maybe made up some percentage of the hypermobile community. And so I hope that in finding, finally identifying that gene that the Norris lab has been working on, that the research continues and that I I guess I'm a little bit nervous that if that gene comes out as being announced as the, you know, hypermobility gene, there's another 10 that we haven't found yet. If the inquiry stops there, that could be, it's just, it's like my brain can always go to worst case scenario kind of, but it's like three steps forward, one step back yep. is still two steps forward though. So <laughs> true, absolutely. And and every little bit of knowledge and awareness helps. This interest this research about the dermal fibroblasts is very interesting. If there's a way to look at the skin, if that might be sort of a more cost effective way of looking at hypermobility. But being able to identify at least the hypermobility early on, or on in life, not formally calling it Ehlers-Danlos. And, you know, these are, it's complicated issues about when and how people should learn this complex information that Im- implicates their health in such a direct way. But kind of going along with that, thinking about getting to earlier, as early as appropriate diagnoses and, you know, whatever the accurate diagnoses might be for a person it seems like a part of that is kind of figuring out the screening tool. And I've been encouraged in seeing there were some physical therapists, Iko Callahan, Annie Squires, and Stephanie Greenspan came up with a hypermobility screening tool that I think they're working on um, seeing about validating with further research, because there's been a lot of research that's come out recently talking about the issues with the Biden score and the limitations that that creates. And it does seem like if we could get away from Biden, which looks at nine joints. And I've heard from researchers that I think there's like hundreds of joints. I, I don't know if it was yeah, 300 or something. The Biden score has so many issues. And so the Biden score is, it's really misunderstood as a whole. It was never made for diagnostic purposes. It was made to see if certain number of joints were hypermobile that was it. And then it turned into what it is now. And it does, it really does not do what we need it to do. It does not tell us if someone is or isn't hypermobile. It tells us if they have nine hypermobile joints. And there's a lot more than nine joints in our body. Mm -hmm. And it is extremely upper extremity heavy. And so a lot of people who may not be hypermobile in their upper extremities, but are very hypermobile in their lower extremities can't get diagnosed Mm -hmm. with any form of HSD or HEDS because they don't, in quotes, pass the bait and scale. And that 
is super, super problematic. It's also not a very sensitive test. So if we, if you don't pass it, that shouldn't mean that you don't, that you're not hypermobile because the research shows that that's not true. But because of the way the diagnostic criteria is laid out, us as medical, not me, but medical providers in general don't really have a choice as of right now. And so if we could get better screening tools, I think that could be a huge, huge game changer as well. Absolutely. And yeah, the research that's been coming out on that has been very interesting. And it was very interesting to learn that, as you as you mentioned, like the Biden's score was designed, I believe, as an epidemiological tool, yep. and I don't think was ever designed for clinical practice. There's sort of easy things that you can think of that show its limitations, like someone who was an amputee of their arms, I think by yeah. definition would not be able to meet because that would be four points off the yeah they, they I think literally so. would not be able to meet it period mm-hmm. and yet we all realize that you know exactly six points mm-hmm. in the upper extremity oh yeah it's crazy yeah and so like again like I said anything that happens to people can happen to hypermobile people and so it's like it's just it's very limiting and there's the whole feature about having a family member that's diagnosed and we know how difficult it is to get diagnoses and so there's kind of this cart before horse element of that too and so hopefully we'll get some uh, additional diagnostic criteria that are more more sensitive we can kind of get get a fuller picture of how many people are hypermobile and i think that also would go a long way because it certainly I get the sense and from looking at the research, like the Demler study in Wales, that um, hypermobility is far more prevalent than yes. um, has previously been thought. Absolutely. And kind of going back to getting screening tools and trying to get kids to be diagnosed younger, I think it's also important that when we're explaining what hypermobility is, especially to kids that we're not using worst case scenario and worst case situations and showing that by being diagnosed younger, this is actually giving you opportunity to use your hypermobility in a way that's going to be beneficial to you and make you have a better quality of life than if you didn't have this diagnosis or if you weren't aware of your hypermobility. Because I think a lot of the times, as of right now, the narrative around it can be really, really negative and that can be really scary for parents and kids. That's a really important point to make. And I've spoken to many people who are diagnosed at all points in life, and I am really encouraged to hear people who are diagnosed later in life and were able to make huge changes and get better. And I've seen that happen. So, and I think that's just such an important point to kind of keep this hope and also this understanding of this huge spectrum nature. And there's a lot of uncertainty in that because people want answers. Sometimes, you know, even if it's negative, they just want to know what the future is going to be like. And that's really difficult to predict for a lot of conditions, but it seems particularly acute when we're talking about hypermobility. Yeah, definitely. So there's a lot of speculation in the community about what factors might cause people to go from relatively functional to these downturns or downward spirals that we often see. Do you have thoughts on what factors might cause hypermobile people to lose function, sometimes even rapidly, as we've all kind of seen and heard about? Yeah, so I think that obviously this is going to be different. Everybody is different, individualized. But as a whole, I see trauma being a very big factor in this. And I think something that I definitely see a lot and that isn't 
necessarily considered trauma, but in my opinion should be, is pregnancy and childbirth. I see a lot of people have a huge up in symptoms after they gave birth or postpartum. And I think that's something that's not talked enough about and definitely not researched enough about. Um, Some other things is, and they're now kind of coming slowly coming out with papers on this and research about this, but is viruses and COVID obviously was a big one. Um, And I think it also depends on the comorbidities involved as well. So we know that deconditioning can really make POT symptoms a lot worse. Same with joint pain. And the reason we know that hypermobile bodies decondition faster than the general population as well. So it's really important that you recondition slowly and steadily. I think a big issue when it comes to going down a rapid digression in symptoms and losing function is that you might have gone too hard too fast because you were able to before and you thought you were still at that level and now you're not and you didn't gradually expose yourself to whatever it may be that you needed to. Those are really important points to make and particularly underlining the role of pregnancy and other hormonal changes, what that can have. I completely agree that we need more research to figure that out. But I've talked to many people who had an illness, whether it was like mono, Epstein-Barr, COVID, you know, all kinds of things that really, or, or an injury, a traumatic injury that really kind of precipitated their loss of function. And it seems like there could be a lot of reasons for that, you know, having the more lax connective tissue, we're more at risk for certain types of injuries. But also, I think you really hit the nail on the head with the deconditioning piece, and just how rapidly we can decondition. And to me, that seems like something that I wish was taken into consideration more when surgeons are discussing surgery and recovery from surgery, because I know I've had many surgeries where I've been told, okay, after X amount of time, you should be fully recovered. And then when that time goes by and you're not recovered or you're even worse or have a new pain, it that kind of clash of expectations and reality can be really, really disheartening when you're, you know, looking at the calendar, waiting for that date when you're supposed to be better and you're not. And so I think, you know, surgeons too, if they were kind of more aware of, you know, the extra risks, the increased bleeding, or some patients have kind of bleeding issues or, you know, propensity to bruising or just this not recovering from injury as quickly, um, being able to kind of keep that in mind and realize that we might be on a different timeline than, than others. Yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think that the deconditioning after surgery is something that is not talked about enough at all. And it also the going into surgery too, and knowing what is this surgery really going to be helpful when a lot of people with hypermobility, they go for, let's, I'm going to use labrum, like a hip labrum as a, as a good example of this. We know that most likely that labrum is going to tear again, whether you have surgery or not. Were you told that before you go, got into this surgery? And were you told that by not being able to be active for a specific amount of time, your symptoms might truly regress in that downward spiral-like fashion. And I don't think enough people are warned about that before going into surgery. I completely agree. It comes into play too with, because labral tears are you know pretty common, I, I think, in the general population, but seem to be you know, particularly an issue for hypermobile people. And I, I know this all too well from personal experience, that when you have a tear, even a really severe tear where the bones are scraping on each other, not to get too graphic, but <laughs> there's like basically the options are repair or a full joint replacement. And a lot of surgeons yeah. will, at least in, what, in my experience, won't consider a replacement until you're of a certain age. But it seems like something, you know, if you're going to re-tear again and, you know, go through all of this trouble, 
it seems like something to be considered, as well as whether adaptive devices, whether it's use of a wheelchair, use of a cane, you know, and being able to just look at all of this in context and then have patients make informed decisions. But that's really hard to do in the absence of good quality research about that. Yeah, informed consent is something that I don't think is happening enough Mm -hmm. in the medical community in general. Mm -hmm. And going off of that, also our PT after surgeries, a lot of the time we come in with the full range of motion. So our PTs are like, oh, you're fine. You're better. You meet Mm -hmm. the range of motion Mm -hmm. um, qualification. You don't even need PT anymore. And the truth is we were never going to lose that range of motion. Um, Our ligaments are already at the level of laxity they're going to be at. And range of motion has nothing to do with pain. And pain has nothing to do with range of motion. And I will be saying that to my grave because I think it's really, really important that PTs and chiros and OTs really understand that. Um, A lot of the time I see people discharged from PT because they met the range of motion qualification when that that shouldn't even be a factor in the person that you're dealing with pain um, Mm -hmm. because that was never an issue for them. And then going off of kind of the illness category causing a downturn, I think that MCAS too needs to be brought up in that realm. And Mm -hmm. I'm certainly not an expert in mast cell, but I'm starting to learn more about it slowly. But I definitely think there is a component there that has skyrocketed some people's symptoms as well. Yes. And that's a really important point about the range of motion thing. I think that's critically important because that also folds into another issue, which is that the perception that a lot of people in the community and even all too many doctors have of hypermobility in general is like, oh, you're so lucky. You're flexible. Most people are inflexible. Exactly. We're so focused on range of motion as being the kind of be all end all criteria for functionality and capability. And we're not looking at pain, we're not looking at, well, are the muscles like in total spasm? Or, you know, is there alignment dysfunction, all of these other, you know, and what is this person's lived experience? Can, are they back to right. their level of functionality before the surgery? Or are they better than that, as you'd hope from a surgical intervention? And so right. I think that's really important to kind of de-emphasize the role of range of motion, particularly when working with hypermobile patients. Yeah. And especially with chronic pain too, like I know a lot when I was in school, especially they ask you to go through your range of motion. I go through it with no problem. And they're like, well, you don't have any restrictions. So I don't know why you're in pain. And that's really, really problematic if we're only looking at range of motion for pain. Pain is so complex. Mm-hmm. Range of motion is like such a sliver on the big scheme of things that when it comes to pain and it it's very, very overlooked, I think, especially with this population. Definitely. And this conversation just reminds me of a thought I had a moment ago, and then I lost it. I'm having a bit of a brain fog day myself. <laughs> um, but we were talking about in context with this thinking about children and when's the appropriate time for the knowledge about their hypermobility. It also brings to mind, I guess it's kind of stuck in my mind for a while this name hypermobility spectrum disorder. There's something about the word disorder in this context that really kind of sticks with me because usually when we hear the word disorder, it's used to describe behaviors like anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, things like that. And I guess I I wonder about the kind of stigmatizing effect of labeling any person, um, but particularly a child with something that says you are inherently disordered, you're inherently different in this way, because as we're talking about, there is a huge spectrum. 
And in kind of learning about the historical context of hypermobility, that really opened my eyes to hear that hypermobile people were first described in 400 BC. So I, I kind of wonder if we're just a different type of person. And then I kind of wonder if that label disorder is really appropriate in this context. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I- I think that it's very interesting to me that it's hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and then it's hypermobile spectrum disorder. I find that extremely interesting um, because it really should be categorized as a syndrome. So a syndrome is when we have a collection of signs and symptoms or traits and abnormalities that occur together that are associated with a specific name of something. So like Down syndrome and there's a, a lot of syndromes mm-hmm. and I really do believe Ehlers-Danlos syndrome makes sense in this in this category whereas a disorder it's this is it's not really a disorder um and I I don't know how or why it got named that but I do think it is definitely problematic. Definitely and in kind of going back to what you were saying earlier about the need for hope in this community and the need to not only portray the worst case scenario and and kind of focus on that. I think that's really important because you know, as human beings, we are so dependent on the things that we hear. We remember everything that we hear or like we kind of intuit that message. And yeah, it, I guess I wish it would go back to being, or I, I see it as a syndrome as well and not a disorder. And I think there's issues with naming things, anxiety disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder too. Like I think the word disorder just has a lot of baggage to it. And I also, with those conditions, I also wonder, you know, if we look deeper into the why, if there would be more of an understanding and kind of less of a desire to label these things in what seems like kind of a negative light, I guess. Yeah. And it's really interesting too, because like by definition, a disorder is something that we know the cause of. Mm. And for most of these things that we categorize as disorders, like you said, anxiety disorder, like we don't always know the cause of that. And so it it is, I don't know who decides on when it becomes a disorder versus a syndrome, but it seems like we've gone away from the true definition of these two things and disorder definitely has a negative connotation around it and it shouldn't just be used to be used. Something I think a lot, of, a lot about because I think language really kind of sets the framework yes. that we operate in, in trying to get more sort of acceptance and more support. I just think it's kind of critically important to pick the right language that, that gets yeah. the message across without being unnecessarily stigmatizing. And that's why I personally choose to refer and you know, talk about my condition more in terms of the hypermobility piece, because I, I say all the time, like the words Ehlers-Danlos and syndrome, like none of that tells anyone anything about just just the words themselves don't communicate any part of the lived experience. Whereas the hypermobility, if you're really looking at it in context, I mean, it refers to the blood vessels, the connective tissue, so many things are moving more than in the biotypical population, or however, we're going to refer to everyone else non hypermobile. But it's really tricky, too, because a lot of people with Ehlers-Danlos don't have or, or don't really consider themselves hypermobile, hypermobile or they may have muscle spasms or something else that's overriding the joint hypermobility to kind of keep them in less range of motion. So, you know, I don't know exactly what the perfect terminology for this is. I guess I just the current status of things seems to not be helping, I guess. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Our words matter so, so much in every context, not only when we're just talking about hypermobility, but also when we're talking about 
what our treatment for whatever, let's say joint pain really is doing and also what you're capable of and around fear. And there's our words matter so much more than I think we ever realized. We always said like sticks and stones break your bones, but words can never hurt me. Words can hurt us. Words hurt us all the time. And I think that we could all be better on our communication skills and we can all do better with how we communicate about this syndrome, if you will. And I agree. I like to call it hypermobility as well. That's usually how I reference it. And I also do get a little kickback with that sometimes because people are like, well, why don't you talk about EDS as much? And to me, EDS, I agree with you. It doesn't give the full picture of what hypermobility really is. And it doesn't really mean anything to me in a way, whereas hypermobility really validates my lived experience. Mm-hmm. That's that's how I see it as well, and and yet it's 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 a very interesting discussion, and it's it's so highly personal how we choose to describe ourselves. But I think, like you said, like these words really matter, and that phrase, yeah, sticks and stones can break our bones, but words can't hurt us. That's always been perplexing to me too, because I think we all know that a dismissive remark or you know comments that people make, like we were just talking in the context of medical gaslighting. Like those can be some of the worst things that we experience and we experience a lot of physical pain. And yet those those moments of emotional pain can be really, really rough too. I bet if we took a poll, it would be that the words and the medical gaslighting was more negatively impacted these patients in this population than anything else. Yeah, I think for a significant percentage of the population, absolutely. And and it is it can be incredibly isolating and terrifying when you go to a professional and you share your what you're experiencing and it, that can be really hard to open up and when you get met with dismissal, which all too many of us, you know, know that road all too well, it is it is truly awful. And so I guess here's here's to better words. <laughs> yes, to better words. I love it. <laughs> Um, So switching gears a little bit, how do you treat and manage your own hypermobility? Do you have any insights or tips that you've learned that you'd like to share with the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So strength training has been something that has been unbelievably helpful for me. Um, I would say that's probably the thing that helped me manage my subluxations the most. And then also mindset work, breath work, honestly, going to therapy and working on some past trauma that I needed to. Um, And then obviously having healthy nutrition habits for me personally, and I don't think that this can be generalized, having a high protein diet has been really, really helpful for me. I noticed that when I go low on my protein, I get really, really bad fatigue, really bad brain fog, et cetera. That's my own personal lived experience. And again, that will be different for everybody. But I would say keeping an exercise routine going, I focus a lot on kind of balance work or proprioception work, if you will. And that's been super helpful for me as well. And yeah, I would say those are the biggest things that have helped me personally. Those are great tips. And so glad to hear that those things have been helpful. Yeah, the protein is a really good reminder. That's something that I've definitely found beneficial too. It's so much to keep track of. It's really kind of a lot to manage. And I guess that's why you need a coach. (laughs) Why you need what? I said that's why you need a coach. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it also reminds me to kind of put in a my own observation about the role of fat. I in diet, I, you know, I think a lot of us grew up, you know, being kind of told to be cognizant of how much fat we're we're consuming. And yet, um, I once talked to a provider who recommended taking a spoonful of vegetable oil and either in water or plain. And I usually put it in water because it's a little gross. But um, (laughs) I find taking 
for myself personally, taking medium chain triglyceride coconut oil, which I know is not for everyone. So please don't just go out and do that, you know, talk to <laughs> providers and see if that could be helpful. But that taking the spoonfuls of like vegetable fat in times of stress can be um, calming for some people. And I have definitely found that to be true. And I, I, as far as I understand, I think our brain is like made of a lot of fat. And so yeah. it kind of makes sense if we're not getting enough of that dietary fat, our brain's going to be craving that in some way. And so I found that surprisingly helpful. And so now I'm much less. It's so funny that you bring that up because um, we've never talked about this, but my grandma, she I will never forget this when I was little. She was so anti-fat. It was like the word fat triggered her. It's like, you can't eat chicken skin. You can't eat anything that has fat. Fat is the worst thing ever. And that's because that that's what they were told. And that's what they thought. They truly believed that. And now we know that that is just so far from the truth and reality and that healthy, good fats are so good for our brain. So yeah, that, that's really funny that you brought that up. Yeah. And it's really interesting how dietary fat and salt were both kind of villainized. And, you know, for, for some yep. people with high blood pressure and stuff, they really got to watch their salt. And, you know, there's a reason, but, you know, now as we're starting to learn it really, you know, sugar can be really, really hard on the body, especially in big quantities, but even things like juices and things where sugar kind of sneaks in can be difficult for a lot of people. So kind of getting this context back into order is really important. And so we touched on it a bit, but what do you think are the areas that are most in need of research when it comes to the hypermobile population? Honestly, I wish I could say everything, but I really do think pregnancy is a big, big one that is not being researched enough and is impacting people every single day. Musculoskeletal research especially needs a lot more research, not only in this population, but in general, but especially when it comes to things like joint pain and the reasoning behind it and subluxations and what can we really do to prevent? Can we prevent them? Um, is that something that we should even be trying to do? Or is that kind of out of the realm of being human and us not even being able to do that? Um, so I think that MSK research as a whole, but especially within this population. And then I think that comorbidities that go along with hypermobility, mm -hmm. what is the reasoning and what can we do about them and what should we really be looking out for? And then I think that those kind of deconditioning and those rabbit, rapid symptom regression, I think if we could get some research in that area, that would be amazing as well. Also GI issues. Mm -hmm. GI issues really are lacking research right now. Absolutely. Completely agree. And yeah, those are all huge issues. And here's hoping that there'll be more research on that in the future. Well, thank yes. you so much, Taylor Goldberg, for joining us today and for sharing your perspectives and experiences. Do you have any parting words or last thoughts for the listeners? Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. And I hope that listeners all around learn from this. Um, and yeah, I'm always available to anybody. So feel free to message me on Instagram. It's the Hypermobile Cairo. Um, I would love to talk to everyone. Absolutely. Well, it was so great having you. Thanks for joining us today. As a reminder, we'll put links to Taylor's Instagram and her website if you want to reach out for some hypermobile coaching. And that's all for this episode of the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Thanks for listening. And as always, feel free to reach out at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com. Until next time. Bye.